0: We almost all said amen, didn't we? Yes. Praise the Lord for joyful sounds from the Lord. The scripture tonight is found in Exodus chapter 5. I will be reading certain selections from it and then into chapter 6 a little later. This is part of a series by some of the pastors of the church uh, studying the Exodus and uh, facing uh, Conflicts facing situations where we're under fire. And let's look at this chapter, chapter 6, looking first of all at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and will not let Israel go. Then in verse 4, But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get Back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, After he had warned them that they could no longer use straw for their bricks, the people in verse 12 gathered and scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble for use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressuring them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen, appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers, were beaten and were asked, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants in this way? Verse 17, Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. Verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this the way you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I'm not a mountain climber, although I have climbed a couple mountains. The thing that strikes me when you're climbing mountains is you go up a little ways, and then you realize... You think you're near the top, and all of a sudden it drops off again. You've got to go down a little bit and then climb up another ridge. And it may drop off again, and then you go up the next ridge. And it may be a long time where, having first perceived the mountain, then you think it's a lot further up to the top than I ever expected. Well, these people are on the climb to Mount Sinai, in a sense, and in chapter 5, they come to the cauldron of conflicts. There are major conflicts in this chapter, as you have seen, as we have read it together. Here's the first conflict. You have a satanically inspired Pharaoh who is angry, and while he's caught in his anger, he's oppressing the people with great energy. That's the first conflict. The second conflict is that the elders and the officers of the people of God were also angry, and they were judging at the same time God's people. They were judging God's leaders. In fact, they even spoke about the stench that the people of God had become in the eyes of Pharaoh and the slave drivers. At the time of conflict, perhaps after they left Moses and Aaron, having spoken their peace, they returned to their habitats in the various tribal areas, the tribal areas of Naphtali and Dan and Gad and Asher and Judah and Ephraim. And on their way back, they said, oh, what a mess we're in. And they kept grumbling about Moses and Aaron leading them the way they were, and perhaps they started smelling something else on the way. And as they were traveling, they might have smelt their wives' families making homemade bread. And they might have said, well, that smells pretty good compared to what we've been smelling. And as they went a little further, they might have smelt some really well-made pita breads with garlic and leeks and onions on it. Wow, that would be great to get back to. And away from the stench that we 've made ourselves into with Moses and Aaron, oh, they were angry. But then, as we have read in the text, there was somebody else that was angry, and that was Moses, and Moses was angry with God, and he is very much accusing, so you hear here have Pharaoh angry and oppressing, you have The elders, angry and judging. You have Moses, angry and accusing. This is a cauldron of conflict. How are we going to get out of this? Some weeks ago, I guess it was last year, on a national broadcast that shows humorous videos, there was one entry that became pretty interesting to the country and actually won an award And in this video, here is a a dog on a couch. You'll excuse this silly illustration, but the dog is gnawing a bone on the couch. And if you'll permit me to enact it a little bit, here is the front paw of the dog. And he is down gnawing on the bone. But at the same time, he just can't control his excitement. And his back hind paw starts stretching out toward the front. And as he's gnawing on the bone, he sees the back paw, and he goes, and he continues gnawing, and the back paw starts quivering, and he goes again, and on it went. And to the point that at some point further on, he actually went and snapped at his own paw. Now, I don't know why you're laughing at that. It seems strange, doesn't it? But after all, he is just a dog. It's sad when a dog tries to bite himself. But what's even sadder is when the people of God act in similar ways as if to bite themselves, to bite their leadership, to bite the unanimity that they should have with one another. It's incongruous that that kind of fighting should happen. But it has happened in God's scriptures. Someone wrote in the scriptures, but if you bite and devour one another, trouble will come. But this is the situation we have here. And uh, there's one other one who could be said to be angry as well. And if you look at chapter 6, the first verse, Then the Lord said to Moses, This is after having heard Moses, who happened to have to listen to the elders, who happened to have listened to the Pharaoh. The Bible tells us that uh, God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousnesses and disobediences of men. God could be angry here, but actually, the Scripture tells us that the Lord in Psalm 103 knows our frailties and remembers that we are dust. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And notice the tense of the next few passages. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So here we are on this climb, the climb to Mount Sinai, the problems are big, big, the conflicts have come, and God has a whole mess of people in his hands, ultimately, seemingly upset with him. But the Lord tells us he's going to begin with Moses, he states right up front who he is. And then he will say shortly what he's going to do. Who is he? Four simple words. I am the Lord. And you're going to know, Moses, exactly what I do. Moses needed to know this. Just like we need the direction of the Lord. Oh, when times of conflict come, how quick we are to accuse to spread things that are and, and misbalance things and misjudge things, and that's so when we need the Lord with His counsel and with His wisdom. And that is where the Lord reminds us that He is the one who comes in to the conflict because He is the one who has a covenant in keeping His own people. Moses needs to know this. He needs to know what God does. Well, God does two things. First of all, As the scripture seems to show here, he makes men and women of faith. And he uses for Moses an illustration of a man. He just says, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham. Now Moses would remember him. Abraham was that man who about 2200 B.C. was called out by the Lord. The Lord looked on Abraham and uh, was gracious to him and gave him faith. Abraham believed God, the Scripture says, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham knew all about Egypt, too. He went down there, and when he went down to Egypt, He might have seen in the distance the pyramids of Giza. Those pyramids had been there for 400 years before Abraham ever got there. They had been long established. They were pretty impressive. He also must have been impressed with all that which was filled in Egypt, all that they could see, all their idolatry, their worshiping of their idolatry, all the glitter of it, probably the nakedness or near-nakedness of that kind of worship, very sensual and very alluring. But Abraham believed God, and God put it to his account for righteousness. He must have also seen the wealth of the land because there was, as it were, gold flowing. Now in Philadelphia is uh, appearing the, the tomb uh, attachments of King Tut to Tuckerman. He lived about, uh, three, about a hundred years after Moses. I believe it was Howard Carter in 1922 broke into um, an area in Egypt and discovered King Tut's tomb. And after he put the torch inside the tomb, uh, the man behind him said, "'What do you see?' And Howard Carter said, "'I see wonderful things.'" Things that appeal to our sight, beautiful gold and ornaments. And I can't remember, but I think the solid gold coffin of King Tut is there on display. That's amazing, they had that much gold, since afterwards, after the Exodus, when it was transporting, the Egyptians gave lots of gold and silver to God's people as they exited. But Abraham could have been impressed with the gold, the silver, the jewelry. But Abraham had eyes of faith. He just looked to God for his righteousness. And then he mentions Isaac, and I won't say much about Isaac, that great well digger, but that man who knew how much he depended on God because as he was laid down as a sacrifice, his life was spared at the last moment. He knew about God, and God knew about him. And then Jacob also is mentioned, the third of these patriarchs. And Jacob knew about Egypt. In fact, his home son, Joseph, was the one who rescued Egypt in their dire necessity. But he too knew about the gold. He knew too about the silver, the jewelry, the idolatry. He knew about the way they worship things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the creatures of the earth. But that didn't impress Jacob. In fact, as he was lying on his bed, and he got up to lean on his staff as he was dying. The Scripture says he blessed his sons, and he worshipped. He was turning away from all that could seem alluring. God speaks to Moses about these three men. God speaks to Moses about men. In Abraham's case, 800 years before Moses was born. God speaks of him as a friend, as an acquaintance, as one who followed him. And uh, Moses needs to know that God shouldn't be rebuked. Moses needs to know that he is the present God of a present person, Abraham, and his fellow heirs. And so Moses, in this learning of the covenant God and who He is, would realize not only who He is, He's the God who makes men and women of faith, but Moses would discover what He does. And what's He do? Well, the text seems to say, He makes promises to men and women of faith, There are a lot of promises, but I'm just going to mention three from the text. The first promise is that he will remove, and he does remove, the burden of sin and bondage. We know from looking later at scriptures in Galatians chapter 3 and 5, Galatians 3.22 says, The whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Abraham knew that. Abraham didn't have all our revelation, but he had enough, and God gave him faith to believe it. In fact, it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Again, this is the beginning of God's clear revelation. It wasn't just Pharaoh who was oppressing the people. And God was going to deliver them, not just from the slavery of being under a cruel dictator there, but from a greater deliverance. The imagery speaks of a deliverance from sin and bondage. The whole world being given over to sin, God would begin releasing the prisoners and delivering them from their burden. The second thing that I find from this passage is he makes promises to men and women of faith not only to remove their burden of sin, but he promises a redemption by blood, by the blood of outstretched arms. To me, it's not insignificant that in the book of uh, Luke chapter 9, Many years later, actually about 1,400 years later, Moses would appear with Elijah on the Mount Transfiguration where our Lord Jesus Christ was gathered with several of his disciples. And when they gathered up on that mountain, the scripture tells us that Moses did not come down to earth and say, wow, it's been great up here in wherever he was. (laughs) And I think it's some form of uh, in the presence of the Lord. He didn't talk much about all the people he had met, people of faith, people who had been regenerated from all those ages to the present. He didn't talk about those who followed Moses, David, and uh, uh, any other great godly follower of the Lord, King Hezekiah, or, or Ruth, or... Um, well, you can fill in the blank. He didn't talk about that. Moses and Elijah, the Scripture says in Luke chapter 9, when they saw the transfigured Christ spoke of one thing, and that was they spoke of his decease, of his impending death. And I think that's pretty significant because They being there where they are now is dependent upon what Christ does right here on earth. They realized that their redemption by blood with his outstretched arms, which would shortly occur on the cross, guaranteed, and only that would guarantee, their entrance into eternity in the area of God's redeemed people. That which they had held and believed so long, so much before, was dependent upon in the fullness of time where Christ our Lord died for our sins. God makes his promises to men and women of faith. That first promise, he removes the burden of sin and bondage. We could just say from that in a practical application, thanks be to God for his his unspeakable gift. When I was a kid, I think I liked a lot of candy bars. One of my favorites was Mounds. They used to advertise it as being indescribably delicious. And it's pretty good. (laughs) Well, I think that could so well be applied as our scripture tells us. I think it was Paul said, thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. The Lord Jesus Christ, everything is dependent upon him. His cleansing... His blood, His sacrifice, it all is by Him and by grace. And it's also important by way of application to remember that when the Scripture says through Moses there in being confronted with by the Lord, he says, Moses, I want you to remember something. And that is, I'm going to redeem you and all this people who believe with outstretched arms, If the fulfillment of that was at the cross, if later Moses would say, I want to hear about your decease, then we should pay attention to what our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ said when they were in the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was after the disciples were ready to build a tabernacle, they said, well, what shall we do here? And God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, listen to him. Is this the common part of our walk with the Lord? It should, and I believe it is, that we are always listening, listening, listening to the Lord, seeking His Word, seeking His will and purposes. That's part and parcel of the faith walk that God wants to see in His men and women. He makes promises to remove their sin, to redeem them by blood, and finally, He makes promises to restore to family status His people. And he gives that with a glorious future. He restores us to family and a family that has a glorious future. As God is confronting Moses with these reminders, using three people, God doesn't say, I want you to see how great Egypt is. I want you to see how great Abraham was and is. Abraham, the scripture tells us, lives like an alien. If you'll turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 11, just a little glimpse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, although it talks about Noah in this verse, it says, Noah, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Well, I believe Abraham did the same thing when he offered Isaac And everything he did when he went away from Ur and later from Haran into the land of Canaan, he was saving his family. He was doing everything that his family might come to know the Lord. In verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. To keep the family of God in our prayers is what a man and woman of faith does. I can remember an occasion when our little son had to get emergency surgery in a hospital. Well, you know I came to the Lord in prayer and on my knees that God would spare him. But over the years, more so has been that the Lord would touch our family, keep our family, and now you know you're doing the same, to be people of faith, to walk with the Lord, that they might know the Lord, and as they know the Lord, to realize they are not in tune too much to this world. Last year, we came back from London visiting our son, and uh, the day before, there was this bomb scare on all the airlines flying out of Britain. Some of you might recall that. Some of our folks at Reformed Presbyterian prayed much for us. We found out afterwards. But actually, we were fine. Uh, There was... With a few inconveniences, there was really not too much of a glitch. Um, and when I went into the line to go through security and all that, and maybe you have found yourself doing this as well, uh, instead of reaching into your coat and pocket and pulling out your passport, you might have said to the clerk there that wants to identify you, say something like this I am a stranger and an alien here on Earth. How far are you going to go? Now, you see the humor of that, but this is precisely what the Lord wants to see us do in a spiritual, deep sense. He wants us to live like this is not our home. He wants us to realize that we are setting our affection above Notice it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, all these people were still living by faith. They did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country, they had left. They would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I think somewhere in this confrontation where God relates three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives, obviously, who follow the Lord in worshiping, simply had to teach him that God isn't moved to think that and shouldn't be thought of as one who's going to break his government just because he has delayed almost 800 years. God isn't affected by the delay of time. God's decrees will always be brought to pass, as our Westminster Confession says. I have a friend, a roommate from college, and... My friend Jim, he's actually the librarian at Covenant Seminary, told me some years ago that he and his mother and the rest of his family were praying for Jim's dad. He, he said, uh, we just kept praying, and it seemed like God would never answer the prayer. And just a few years ago, I saw him, and he said, guess what, Keith? He said, my dad came to know the Lord as his Lord and Savior. And then I thought with him and asked him, how long have you been praying? He said, well, my mother had been praying for over 40 years that he might come to the Lord. But God brought him. God has his purposes and his will. What he expects are his family to look to him to recognize that he's in the business of removing burdens redeeming by blood, restoring people into status with him through his sacrifice, and with the joy of a glorious future. When when Moses heard that, he must have thought, Ah, he is the Lord. He is the Lord. And the Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, that this mindset change must have affected him somewhere along here, I think. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded the disgrace uh, for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. How wonderful to see that God brought him to a greater realization that God's mountain is a lot higher than Mount Sinai to follow, that God's kingdom is a lot greater. Not long ago, and I'll conclude with this, I was uh, at a mission conference uh, with Arab World Ministries, and I was amazed. They had a video clip of Arab men and women and children singing and praising our Lord Jesus Christ right there in the great city of Cairo. And I'm not just talking a small group of people. The place was thronged with people praising and singing his glory. This was the mountain that was a bigger one than Moses was quite prepared for. May God give us the grace to see the mountains he has. And when the conflicts come, let us remember. God keeps his covenant, whether it's a short time or an expansive time. He is the Lord, and he will fulfill it. Let us take our hymnals now and turn to our concluding hymn. I believe it is number 97.